everyone, and welcome to another new episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel. This is Jeremy Bement, your host, welcoming you to episode 173. I hope everybody is having a happy December. I know mine's going along pretty good, although it seems to be flying by really quick. So here is a rundown of what is new in this episode. We're going to start like we always do by checking out the news and finding out what is new in the world of Doctor Who comics and comic-related stuff. And then, of course, we are going to open the Pandorica on a new Doctor Who comic-related item. And in this case, it's the Star Beast. It has to be the Star Beast, the TV episode that just came out. I know last episode I reviewed the comic strip, the original, and uh, it's time for me to take a look at this the new TV episode, kind of contrast, compare, and uh, see what I thought of it. And then we're going to have a classic interview with someone who I was very excited to chat with way back in 2015. It's someone that I met at one of the few Gallifrey One conventions I had been to. I finally remember back then I was a smoker and I remember going out on a a veranda or a patio somewhere and smoking a cigarette and uh, striking up a conversation with this wonderful person. His name is Clayton Hickman. A lot of you know him as the former editor of Doctor Who magazine. He is also somebody who is very active on Twitter and on the internet doing colorizations of classic black and white photos of Doctor Who. Um, He is a very talented individual, and I had the pleasure of chatting with him about his work on Doctor Who magazine. Um, So we're going to go back to 2015, way back to episode number 27, to take a look at this interview with Clayton Hickman. And that is pretty much it. Um, I want to thank everybody for downloading this episode. I hope everybody's having a great holiday season. I wanted to let you know that starting uh, next year, we're going to I'm going to be changing things up a little bit. Instead of doing a classic episode and a new episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, I'm just going to do a new episode once a month. I'm going to switch to a, kind of a monthly format. Uh, I'm hoping every episode I will have a new interview with somebody who is working on a Doctor Who comic or Doctor Who magazine, or somebody who is tied into the industry. But uh, I figure the classic episodes, it's easier for you to go to either the podcast feed and find uh, recent episodes that way, or go to archive.org and just do searching for all my past episodes and listen to the original versions of them back uh, when they originally came out. Uh, It's also kind of a way to free up my schedule a little bit. I have started another podcast totally unrelated to Doctor Who, and I want to devote some time to that. So that way I can get two podcasts going at the same time. I think uh, I I want to uh, thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast. I hope you don't mind this little switch. And um, I guess that's it. Enough of me, a little, my little uh, banter. Let's jump into this episode and take a look at the news. In the world of Doctor Who comic news for this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel, we are starting out like we always do by taking a look at the calendar and finding out what is new in the world of Doctor Who comics. We're going to start out by taking a look at Wednesday, uh, December 6th, this past Wednesday, Over here in the U.S. at Comic Shops, Doctor Who Magazine issue number 594 came out. For those of you who may be collecting the physical copies over here in the States, make sure you hit up your comic shop for a previous issue, issue 594. But then for those of us who get things digitally, or those of you over in the U.K., Doctor Who Magazine issue number 598 
came out, and that is the brand new episode with Shudi Gatwa being introduced as the new Doctor on the cover, just like Doctor Who magazine has always done ever since the the day that they introduced Peter Davidson uh, with Davidson spelled wrong on the cover. So this time they spelled it right, though. More complicated name, but they got it right. So uh, it's an excellent uh, ep- or excellent issue of Doctor Who magazine. Brand new comic strip featuring the 14th Doctor once again. I believe the next issue will see the debut of the 15th Doctor in comic strip form. But one of the nice things for uh, those people who may be new to Doctor Who or getting back into things, now that the Star Beast has aired on uh, BBC and also on Disney+, Plus. They included a free copy of a reprint of the Star Beast, the comic strip version. Yet another comic strip uh, version of the Star Beast for those people who have umpteen bazillion copies of the Star Beast, like myself and listener Paul Ebbs. Uh, so, but it's great for those people who may not have read the Star Beast comic strip now that they've seen the TV episode to have a copy of the strip that they can. Uh, one they got for free with Doctor Who magazine. They didn't have to buy the fourteen or the fourth Doctor uh, uh, trade paperback that just came out or collected edition. But it gives them a chance to see that this episode came out from a a comic strip. They can kind of compare the two, and it might introduce them to the fact that there are Doctor Who comic strips out there, or Doctor Who comics. So to me, it's a good thing. So I'm glad that they included that. Moving on, this coming Wednesday on December 13th, Doctor Who magazine issue number 595 is coming out here in comic shops, so make sure that you hit that up. But also in comic shops, the Doctor Who Doomsday trade paperback from Titan Comics gets released. Uh, This is just a short little two-issue story that tied in with that big multimedia, multi-platform story. Um, this story, I thought it was kind of a fun little story, has nothing to do with the Doctor whatsoever, really. has to do with the Master, or Missy, and uh, Doom. But it's a, it's a collected edition to add to my big bookcase full of collected editions. The only other new release that will be coming up, if you want to mark your calendars so you don't miss it, on Thursday, January 4th, that should be when Doctor Who Magazine issue number 599 will be coming out. So mark your calendar for that, so make sure you don't miss it out Miss out on $5.99 in the UK and digitally as well. Other than that, it's been kind of quiet. There was lots of Doctor Who comic news last episode. Uh, Titan Comics announced that they are going to do a Doctor Who 15th Doctor comic for free comic book day, which is on May 4th, so mark your calendar for that. If you check out the new previews catalog from Diamond Comics, there is uh, kind of a, a short listing for the Doctor Who free comic book day comic. Uh, They did announce that Dan Waters uh, is going to be the new writer for this uh, series, and they haven't announced the artist as yet, but hopefully soon they will, and we'll get some preview art, and for me, it's something to look forward to. I'm glad that they're going to be pushing the fact that uh, they do have Doctor Who comics. They will be coming out with a new Doctor Who comic. I'm happy to see that they're getting a new writer in. Uh, I think it's well past time for some new blood to write some Doctor Who comics, and I'm looking forward to it. If you want to see other stuff that is going to be coming out in the way of Doctor Who comics that's listed in the new previews catalog, do me a favor and check out my website, which is DoctorWhoComics.com. Every month when a new previews catalog comes out, I scan the pages looking for new Doctor Who comic-related items, and I scan those pages right into my computer and put them up on my website 
So that way you know what's going to be coming out with having to invest $5 in a previous catalog. And you can let your friendly local comic book store know what you want them to hold on to for you. Or special order in. So make sure you check that out. Uh, DoctorWhoComics.com There's other good stuff on there as well. So uh, do me a favor and check out my website. Outside of that, it's rather quiet in Doctor Who Comic News. Everybody's all excited about the the specials that are going on right now. And that's it. Time to jump into a review. Let's take a look at the Star Beast. It's time to do something new on Doctor Who Panel Panel. Something I have never done in my almost 10 years of podcasting. We are going to open the Pandorica on a TV episode of Doctor Who. That's right. Of course, we have to do it. Have to do a review of the Star Beast. The Star Beast, I think pretty much everybody has watched. Um, you can find it on uh, the iPlayer over in the UK. You can find it on Disney Plus anywhere else in the world. And uh, you definitely want to check it out. This is an excellent episode, and the reason we're reviewing it, of course, is because it was uh, taken from the original, or based on the original story of Doctor Who and the Star Beast. In fact, I'm not going to go through and do a plot synopsis, because I'm assuming pretty much everybody has watched it, um, and pretty much everybody has read it. In fact, I did a review of the story uh, not too long ago. But uh, one of the things I wanted, I'm just going to do a review here of, this, of the episode, First thing I want to mention is I thought it was great with the opening uh, title or the opening credits that it says The Star Beast written by Russell T. Davies from a story by Pat Mills and Dave Gibbons. It is great to see that the idea for the story, the people who created the original story that this is based on, get credit right front and center, not a uh, thank you at the end, in the end credits that most people skip over anyway. So... I thought that was really awesome. As far as the story goes, as far as the episode goes, I've said before when I reviewed the, the comic book story that it is a classic story. It's one of those stories that I think you can give to any Doctor Who fan or any comic book fan and have them read it and they're going to really enjoy it. It has great artwork. The story is fun. It's not overly complicated. It's nice, straightforward. It's a good story for people to get into. And I think... Russell T. Davies choosing this as the basis for his uh, bringing Doctor Who back or bringing it on Disney Plus, I think was a really good choice. It's something that you can introduce Doctor Who uh, to new viewers with. It's a story that is nice, straightforward, simple. Uh, for those of us who are long-term Doctor Who fans, who have been watching the series since it came back in 2005, uh, you have stuff there that people know from the the previous time that the, the Doctor and Donna were paired up together. And for those people who are, you know, long-term, long-term from classic series who might have read the comics, you get a, a treat that I think we all can agree on is a long time coming, and it's great to see a, a comic book in, in televised form. As far as the episode itself... I thought the acting was great. It was Donna's one of my favorite companions of the the modern series. It was great to see her back in the the forefront and have her brought back with the fourteenth Doctor. And I'm kind of who are we kidding? It's the tenth Doctor. He just looks older. Um, Chronological or you know timeline wise, yes, fourteenth Doctor. But it was great to see the two of them together. That chemistry that worked so well back years ago is still there it's still solid still strong 
the other actors, the other people that were in the story, the the girl that played Rose, I thought did an excellent job. You know, um, I thought she was great. Uh, Donna's mom uh, was was just like she was, uh, maybe even a little bit meaner, in my opinion, than she was before. It was just well acted. I thought the the uh, story itself. Let's go into the story. I think it's. Yes, I think it's a kind of a traditional Russell T. Davies story. It definitely had kind of all his Hallmark stuff on it. You had a lot of kind of touching moments, a lot of uh, running around, followed by some slower scenes, running around slower scenes. You had a, a nice kind of progression of those things going through. And you had a really, uh, my opinion, I thought it was a really good resolution. I thought you also had kind of a, that message in there about um, being accepting of of all sorts of different people, whether it be trans people or LGBTQ, I thought was a good message to put in there to show that Doctor Who as a TV show is all-inclusive, just like society should be. I thought that was totally fine to have in there. Um, I, I thought the story was good and solid. He took the right bits of what made the Star Beast comic story so good and something that stands the test of time and include them in this in this tv episode so good job russell tv davies i thought you did an excellent job uh special effects i thought the special effects you can definitely tell that disney plus the money that disney is throwing into this they're using that to make things look probably quite a bit better than what we would get if it was just a bbc production I think the special effects were great. I thought the Meep looked really good. I am very impressed and very happy with the fact that pretty much the majority or pretty much all the time that you saw the Meep on screen, it was somebody in a costume and not just CGI the entire time. That gives it that realness, that weightiness, that that it doesn't take you out of the story. I thought the Rarth Warriors looked amazing once again guys in suits i thought that looked great uh, it just visually i thought it looked uh, just amazing from start to finish the opening credits i love the opening credits i watched them numerous times um, the this having the special effects there perfect looked great i guess that's pretty much it i guess you can tell i kind of love the story i commented before i give it nine out of ten i give it two very big thumbs up and it's something that you definitely want to watch if you're a Doctor Who fan. Definitely really want to watch it several times if you're a Doctor Who comic fan. And check it out. Exterminate. Clayton Hickman is a former Doctor Who magazine editor. He edited it for quite a long time. Right during the kind of the end of the wilderness years, kind of right before the series started coming back. And I had the great pleasure back in 2015 of chatting with him about his time on uh, working on Doctor Who magazine, his love of Doctor Who, how he got involved, and um, lots of other stuff about his, his career. Nowadays, you can find him online, uh, especially on Twitter, if you do a search for Clayton Hickman. And he uh, is a very creative, artistic person, and he uh, has created a lot of like Doctor Who-inspired T-shirts and art that you can uh, get on his... Uh, he has an sh online shop. I believe that has a bunch of that stuff, but he also takes a lot of like black and white uh, Doctor Who photos from classic first and second Doctor episodes and stories and promo pictures and stuff and colorizes them and does an amazing job on them. 
So that just goes to prove how talented uh, Clayton Hickman is as an as an artist. And I hope you enjoy this classic interview with former Doctor Who magazine editor Clayton Hickman. Today on Doctor Who panel of the panel, I have the great pleasure of talking to uh, one of the, if not the, longest serving Doctor Who magazine editors. His name is Clayton Hickman, and Clayton, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I think anybody who's read Doctor Who magazine should be familiar with your name, and if they're not familiar with it from Doctor Who magazine, you have plenty of other endeavors that you've worked on in way of Doctor Who. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. true. I've done, I've done a fair few things. I, yeah. I, I think you cover the whole gamut from anything visual or audio. Yeah, I think I do, actually, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, been, a, it's been a strange, long odd ride yeah <laughs> uh how when did you become uh, interested in doctor who back when you were a kid i'm guessing yeah it's um it was one of the earliest things i can remember i think i can remember is seeing tom baker fall off the um, radio telescope in nogopolis oh really um, and yeah it was just funny because my none of my fa- my brother my brother was 10 years older than me and he used to be into doctor who so i'd find occasional target novelizations from the 70s you know in the attic or in cupboards uh-huh. but none of my family were viewers so I'm, i don't quite know how i got into it and it wasn't very popular at that time at school sort of it was the peter davison era i grew up with uh-huh. but i was a massive fan and sort of from season 20 20 i remember being allowed to stay up late to watch the five doctors for example so i was obviously a big fan from early on oh, yeah. you know it was only sort of six or something uh-huh. um but yeah, it's it's funny how because Doctor Who wasn't as big at that time in the UK um, as it was in Tom Baker and John Pertwee times when everybody watched it. Um, so I don't quite know how it became my favourite thing, but it did very quickly, and then I was a massive fan from then on. And also, the useful thing was that around eighty five, eighty six, um, the videos started coming out, and we had a video rental store just down the road. Uh-huh. Um, so I was able to. At the same time as I was watching, say, Colin Baker on TV, I was also watching Day of the Daleks or Robots of Death or, um, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I was getting a good grounding in in, do- in all Doctor Who. Sure, you're which okay. I was the, the first generation to be able to do that. Uh-huh. So you're able to kind of continue watching forward as well as go backwards and, and watch. Yeah, and, and um, funnily enough, the first thing I ever saw, the first publication I ever saw about Doctor Who was... Um, a summer special from Doctor Who magazine, which was a colour reprint of the Iron Legion. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, yeah, it was um, it was really lovely, and I saw it in the local newsagents and bought it. And it, in that was a sort of advert for the magazine, you know, to subscribe. I'd never heard mm-hmm. of the magazine before, so that was how I got in. So I got in with the Iron Legion, which is quite apt. Uh huh. You started right at the beginning of the Doctor Who magazine stuff. Yeah, yeah. And then um, a little later on, I mean, this was this would be around 85, 86. And a little later on, I remember I was off school ill one day and my mum had been to the dentist. It's a, The dentist waiting room is a sort of graveyard of old uh, magazines. And somebody had brought in a huge collection of Doctor Who weeklies and monthlies, which the dentist didn't know what to do with. And my mum said, oh, my son would love these. So I, I suddenly got a real massive back issues of, oh, of wow. Doctor you, Who magazine you. from, you know, Tom Baker through Peter Davison. Uh-huh. So it was so the comic strips, even though my time is slightly after the weekly began, I still think of them as, as my childhood because I got all those old back issues to read through. And, then, you know, there were so many. That was the time when you had the backup comic strip as well as the main comic strip. And uh-huh. it was it was 
amazing. I remember things like um, business uh, as usual with the Autons, and there's one with the, uh, the Demons, and it was uh, the Croton, the Cyberman. Uh-huh. So it was a really when you're a kid, that's what you want, really. And um, and so the, the comics were always a massive part of my love of Doctor Who. Oh, that that's it's kind of fortuitous that that yeah, it was of, lucky, really. <laughs> yeah, how how it leads into later on. So as you grew up, did you have any idea of kind of what you, what you wanted to do with your life, career wise? No, not really. I mean, everything came back came about through Doctor Who. Um, I was um, I joined a local Doctor Who group in Bristol. And through them, I met other people, and eventually that led to me doing a fanzine and, and attending my first convention, which was um, uh, Monopticon in Manchester okay. in about two, in about nineteen ninety four or five. Um, and there, I met people like uh, Gary Gillett, uh, who was then editor of Doctor Who magazine, Gary Russell, Gareth Roberts, mm-hmm. and sort of befriended them. And then from then on, I was visiting London a lot. And then in 1999, a job came up through another Doctor Who friend, Neil Corrie, um, uh, for an assistant editor on Film Review, um, which was a magazine done by Visual Imagination, who was uh, Jan Vincent Rudsky, you know, the old school of Doctor Who fans from uh-huh. the 70s. Sure. They were making these uh, magazines like Cult Times and TV Zone and, and also um, Film Review. So I went along did my interview and got the job and moved to London. Okay. Um, and at the time I needed somewhere to stay. So I was very friendly with Gary Gillett and he had a free room. So I moved in there for about a year. Mm-hmm. So he was editing Dr. Who magazine and then he decided to leave and he said, well, look, you, you should apply for the post of assistant editor. Cause Alan Barnes was about to take over as editor mm-hmm. who'd been Gary's co-editor. And so I thought, well, what's to lose? It's been my favorite magazine since I was a kid. So I, I, I just applied through the, um, a newspaper job ad. Um, I didn't get any sort of, um, any sort of benefit from being Gary's friend. Cause I, I, I didn't know Alan at all. So it wasn't like it was a, an old boys network and a sort of back backhander and all that sort of thing. Uh-huh. It was, I, I just applied like anyone else and I got the job. So, so from, you know, um, late, of late 2000 i was i was on doctor who magazine which was incredible oh i bet what was it what was it like working on doctor who magazine kind of at the tail end of the wilderness years i know talking to to like uh john freeman and richard starkings it, it was back in the right after doctor who was canceled back in the early 90s i know it was really tough to keep the magazine going was it kind of the same way for you as well um sort of but not not quite because i think when gary gillett took over he brought a real sort of fresh take to the magazine and sort of made it as as contemporary as it as it could be mm-hmm. um and sort of really sort of modernized what we were doing and um and so uh, the tv movie obviously helped it was sort of a a blip really but i think we'd all sort of settled in by the time I took over, Big Finish had started. The, the, you know, the, the books were very well, um, very well cemented in people's affections, and, uh-huh. and we sort of had this little world that was. We didn't really expect Doctor Who would necessarily come back, but the program was being looked on quite fondly by that stage. Sure. It wasn't a sort of running joke or an, uh, something the BBC was ashamed of. You know, you'd have theme nights and um, and yeah, Doctor Who was sort of a, a fondly remembered thing, and we had a very sort of loyal readership. So it didn't feel necessarily like we were, didn't know what to do. We, mm-hmm. we had the, the backbone of the magazine was always Andrew Pixley's archives. Oh yes. Love and those. it was only, yeah, it was only when they ran out that we 
felt a little bit, oh, what do we do now? Because we'd been, you know, meticulously researching every Doctor Who story. And when, once you've run once you've run out of that it's it's tricky to know what to do and so we were a little bit floundering but that was pretty much the time when the announcement came so so we didn't really have that much of a problem mm-hmm. well, that's good to know no yeah it was, it, was, it was a relief really because i think we were starting to feel a little bit where do we go from here mm-hmm. yeah I, I suppose that would kind of give you a tinge of you know how much further can we go on you know before we run out of material or start rehashing the same stuff we've we've covered before well ex- exactly because you know you only have a finite amount of things and also we'd, we'd managed to get things like sort of interviews we'd wanted for years sort of with christopher bailey and things like you know people who'd never been interviewed we'd sort of done those uh-huh. and we'd um <clears throat> we'd done uh, big interviews with colin baker and all it, it, interviews were getting more honest and more candid yeah um and this was just just before the dvds really happened and you know and obviously the commentaries and and special features on those became a lot more open mm-hmm. about about what doctor who was like so uh, it, it was yeah there was a, a sort of feeling of we do need something else because even though our readership is incredibly loyal and and the magazine was always going along quite happily there was no tail off in readership which is incredible when you think about it after how long the show had been off the air um we just sort of felt where do we go from here what do we turn the magazine into but luckily that that question didn't have to be asked because the new series was announced yeah most definitely and uh the you took over as the editor right about or was it shortly before the the new series was announced I, I took over as editor, I think, in about 2002. So the new series was announced towards the end of 2003. Okay, so, so you had a little bit yeah. of a time there. But I've been on the magazine as assistant editor since 2000, so I've already been there for quite a while with Alan. Okay, so was it just a natural progression that when Alan decided to, to step aside that you kind of just took the reins? Yeah, it was um, <clears throat> it was quite a surprise, really, um, because I... I Alan had been there quite a long time, though, along alongside Gary. So, sort of almost before he became sole editor, he'd been pretty much half editor. So, I don't think um, he necessarily had any, much more that he wanted to do or say. Okay. So, when another job came up for him um, with uh, Judge Dredd magazine, I think he thought, well, you know, I'll go and I'll go on to Fresh Fields. Uh-huh. And I, I think for Panini, because Panini never really understood what Doctor Who magazine was, they left us alone. They just thought, well, this happens every month. It makes us some money. We don't understand it, so we'll just leave them be. Uh-huh. <laughs> we won't interfere. So I think, you know, there was no question. They just turned to me and said, so you'll take over then? I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> as easy as that. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, it was very strange, really, because, you know, Panini were really uh, at, at that time doing reprints of Marvel comic books, doing um, children's magazines and Doctor Who magazine was sort of just this, this thing that was a, a, a leftover from the days of Marvel when that, when Panini took over Marvel UK, mm-hmm. but it was, you know, profitable and, and w- we were no trouble. You know, we just sort of sat in the corner of the office in our own little world and didn't do anyone any harm. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so they left us to it. Uh-huh. Um, Switching over a little bit to, to more on the comic strip side of things, when you took over as editor of, of Doctor Who magazine, the, the comic strip was still going along with the Eighth Doctor, and you know the Eighth Doctor had a long, really, really well-done run in the comic yeah. strip. Um, when they announced that the TV show was... Well, actually, let me backtrack just a little bit. When, when you were doing the Eighth Doctor comic, 
did the BBC like have a lot of say in what you did with the Eighth Doctor comic strip, or did you just kind of say, you know, you can do no, whatever you the, want? The, I mean, with, with everything to do with the magazine, the BBC just didn't have any interest. They just uh, we didn't really have any approvals. Um, we just got our license renewed every so often, and they let us carry on much as we were. I mean, I think because there was nobody at the BBC at that time who knew anything much about Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and we were always the people they would turn to if they needed anything, um, Doctor Who, any questions answered or any uh, photos found for something they were doing. Uh-huh. So, we, so we were seen as the sort of um, the, the keepers of the flame, as it were. <laughs> so they just left us to it. Okay, so then when uh, they announced the Doctor Who was coming back, did that the roles kind of reverse a little bit then? Well, if everything changed, really. I mean, I think um, I think had it not been for Russell T. Davis, who who I'd been friends with for, a, well, actually since that first Doctor Who convention I went to in about ninety ninety five or six. Oh wow! I met him there, um, and you know he was we were in contact with him all the time, and he'd he'd email us, and I think without Russell to smooth the way for us, we might have been in trouble because I think the BBC would very probably have tried to call in all their licenses and, and sell it to the highest bidder. But I think he was very keen that, you know, he liked the magazine and he had every issue mm-hmm. right back since the weekly days. So he was keen that we should carry on and, and be given proper access and, and, and be left alone kind of as we were. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think he, he really saved us there. Um, but obviously we had things like likeness approvals for the new actors and then Russell had to check the storylines and it was very kind of him because he did that personally. He didn't outsource that certainly for the first year or so uh-huh. he would read the scripts himself and comment. Um, and l- later on it was, it was put over to people like Gary Russell, um, who was working for BBC Wales at that time. But certainly in the early days, Russell would do that personally. He would check everything for us. Yeah, well, it, sound, it sounds like from other things I've heard, too, it, we should be really thankful that Russell Davies was the one who took over doing the TV show because he, you know, along with Doctor Who Magazine, with the big finish audios, he kind of said, you know, these are already established licenses and they're doing really good work. Don't mess with them. Yeah, it's incredible, really. I mean, the, the generosity of that, the, the, I mean, the unlikeliness of, of somebody who was that entrenched in Doctor Who fandom and Doctor Who lore and, and knew what was what, then taking over the show, you know, when it was a massive, massive BBC multi-million pound, um, uh, huge brand they were trying to create. But you have someone there who's going, no, no, no we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to keep what's good um, about, you know, uh-huh. Doctor Who publishing or Doctor Who audios. And, and, and it will, you know, because if, if we do it well it will only reflect well on our show. Yeah, uh, very true. So go. So talk about the, the Eighth Doctor comics that, that uh, you worked on quite a bit when you were assistant editor and, and then became yeah. editor. Uh, what was the, the comic strip like back then? Well, I think um, when Gary Gillett and, and Alan were together with Scott Gray, they, they'd had a real sort of um, revitalizing of the comic strip. I think, you know, they decided to move it initially back to the seventh doctor and then on to the eighth doctor. Whereas for a while it had been any old doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, it hadn't really been an ongoing thing, but I think they were all such fans of doctor Who weekly of the, of the brilliant early strips um, and wanted to bring it back into that universe as it were. Okay. So they, you know, with story arcs and I think what you have to remember is that um, 
for that whole period when Doctor Who was off the air, the comic strip was the only visual form of Doctor Who there was. I mean, there were audios towards the latter part, and there were books, but there was nothing where you could see the adventures, you know, see the monsters. Yeah, yeah that's very true. You know, the, the Doctor Who's visual style is such a big part of it um, that, you know, you can hear the Daleks on an audio, but really you want to see them, don't you? You mm-hmm. want to... So, so they, they'd really got into making the strip something exciting and unexpected, and and that was when I joined, I think... The first issue I was on, it was the very last comic strip in black and white because Alan had finally got the money from the bosses at Panini to um, to make the strip full colour. So I was sort of joining a period where um, Alan and Scott were were still really firing on all cylinders and, and pushing the comic strip even further. Uh-huh. And, because it was always the most expensive part of the magazine to do. Oh, I'm sure. Um, but... You know, I think we managed to get extra pages for it and turning it into colour sort of made it, it... It just looked a little bit sad in black and white, um, given the sort of the very colourful look of the magazine by that stage. It was, you know, full colour throughout, uh-huh. except for these seven pages of black and white. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it sort of felt like it was it was really sort of... It was still fresh. It was making it more, of a, more of a feature... I, I think that at least that's the impression I got because I've been reading Doctor Magazine for a long time and through this whole era. I know when it switched to color to me, it, it made it feel like it was more an official part of the of the the uh, magazine instead of being a magazine with a comic strip stuck in it. It seemed like it was you know a, a full fledged feature of the magazine. That's very true. I mean, I think I, I didn't quite appreciate until I joined the magazine quite what a massive part of of working on the magazine the strip is because it takes you know it takes a lot to 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 do comic strip pages alongside regular magazine pages but you know you've got to get the story idea sorted you've got to get the script sorted you've got to get the artwork sorted every panel every line of dialogue has to be sort of poured over and approved by us and and you know it, it's it's a massive part of working on the magazine is the comic strip mm-hmm. and i hadn't quite appreciated that because i don't think it was you know you just assume it just materializes there it is it's it's you know seven pages of comic great yeah. <laughs> there, can't, there can't be any difficulty in that uh-huh. surely but you know you when you get to see the love and attention to detail that is poured into that strip it's astonishing so yeah it's not, that definitely gave you more appreciation for for the work that went into it did that um change kind of your outlook as to what you wanted to do with the comic strip back then <laughs> A little bit. I mean, to be honest, um, when I first started on the magazine, I, I wasn't that involved with the comic strip because Alan and Scott had been there for so long and they knew what they were doing. Okay. But as time went on, I became more and more interested in it because it was, it was you know, we were making new Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for all the brilliance of, of an archive or an interview this is sort of the real deal, as it were, especially, you know, in those days when the TV series wasn't likely to come back. Yeah. Um, it felt like a sort of a privilege and a sort of um, a responsibility, you know, to, to make this visual Doctor Who the only the only visual Doctor Who there was at that time. So um, it sort of became more and more interesting. I, I sort of started sticking my oar in more and more. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the thing about it is, is that um, Doctor Who magazine had moved when Panini took it over outside London to Tunbridge Wells in Kent. 
So for me, and I think, and also for Scott and Alan, um, often we'd have train journeys of up to an hour and a half each way wow. to get from London out to the office. So we were on trains together a lot. Mm-hmm. And that was where most of the discussions and reading of scripts and reading of stories and was just chatting on the train journeys just, just, just to get through them because they were so <laughs> interminable. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, often because Scott was working – his full-time job was was working on the collected editions of uh, U.S. Marvel comics, which were repackaged for the U.K. Okay. So even though he was sitting with us, he wasn't really working with us. So a lot of the time during the day, we didn't really have the time to get together for meetings. So the meetings were on the train. So so every day, you know, you'd almost have the equivalent of a two or three hour meeting taking uh-huh. place on a train where Scott would go, you know, suddenly whip out um, the new storyline he'd been working on from his bag and go, here you go. And, you know, you'd be really <laughs> Ooh, exciting. Uh-huh. So, you know, there were, there were fun things like, you know, we'd be trying to work out how a villain should die at the end of a strip. And so I'd, I'd suggest something and Scott would go, oh, that's brilliant. Or, or, you know, we'd be trying to think of the name of a strip. And I remember we had the Dalek, the McGann Dalek one. And I, um, I started singing Children of the Revolution, the song, for some reason. I, mean, I can't remember why, but he went, that's the title. Uh-huh. So it was, it was really good fun. It's some of my favorite memories of the magazine were the, the comic strip stuff with Scott, because Scott is, uh, I mean, oh, he's a genius. He's honestly, he's so devoted to that strip. Yeah, he's so full and of I ideas. Used to see, yeah, I used to see sometimes the notebooks he'd keep with ideas. I mean, half of it was stuff that never got anywhere. He decided against it, but there were notebooks full of notes and ideas and and um, little scenes that could be slotted into other strips. And it was it was incredible the research he would do. Uh-huh. You know, say there was a there was one we were doing about Spring Hill Jack. Um, you know, the sort of the menace of Victorian London, uh-huh. and, and he'd done. He'd done more research than a sort of PhD paper on Spring Hill Jack oh, wow. would have done. It was incredible. Um, so it was, it was really exciting. It, it, it just felt like it was the the new bit of doing the magazine. Everything else was looking back, but the comic strip was looking forward. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, that's a good look at it. And the other thing too is uh, with with the comic strip is you pretty much have. Uh, as far as visually goes, an unlimited budget. You can you you can do whatever you want to with it. That is true, but I was always um, I always remembered I was always very, very good friends with Gareth Roberts, um, who obviously is the writer on the new series now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember him always going that he sort of lost it, the comic strip lost him sometimes when it was too alieny, when it was like um, almost like the web planet, you know, where everyone's an alien and everyone looks odd and every sky is pink. Uh-huh. And it was almost something, I think Russell T. Davis said something similar when the new series came back, that, you know, if you had someone in massive robes against a purple sky with three moons, you might lose the regular, you know, the, the yeah. mums watching the ironing. They'd probably just tut and walk away. Uh-huh. Um, so I think with the comic strip, you had to be careful that it didn't get too outlandish. You can do anything, but that doesn't mean you should. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think you still have to keep it grounded and human and emotional. Um, and there were, you know, things we did where, I mean, it's funny because Russell, before the show came back, was sort of our monthly um, litmus test for how well the comic strip was doing. Because we knew if we'd done something he really liked, he would send us a glowing email going, oh, that was amazing. And I oh, remember yeah. at the end of the, the Izzy arc when um, she kissed Faye, and mm-hmm. came out basically came out of the closet, which, which which was something that I know Alan Barnes had intended her to be a lesbian from the very beginning, 
but it hadn't really been pushed up in the stories. But we had a, an email from Russell after that, just going, that kiss, that kiss, you clever pioneering bastards. <laughs> and that was just such a wonderful thing to get from, you know, a TV writer of that, uh-huh. you know, that quality. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, probably less than a year later, there he was as, as king of Doctor Who. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's great that you had such a, a connection with him even prior to the TV show coming back. It was I, I can't tell you how lucky it was. It was so fortunate. I had I had a similar thing with David Tennant because I'd met him at a party um, that Mark Gatiss had thrown, and we got on well. And then I met him at another party, and he'd just been cast as Casanova in Russell's Casanova. Mm-hmm. And we were chatting, and I've still got the emails from that time. It's sort of um, I was going, oh, this is great. You can do Casanova, and then in a in a couple of years, you can be the tenth Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> and he writes back and goes, I know, it's brilliant. It's it's, a, it's a, the perfect wheeze. I think I can. <laughs> <laughs> and then again, less than a year later. <laughs> See, there's an awful so, lot of things just happenstance happen to you throughout your career. That it was, it's, it's it's crazy. It's it's insane. <laughs> it really is. I've been so lucky. I can't. If if the if the planets hadn't conjoined in that way, I think we'd have been in real trouble. If it hadn't been Russell, or if you know we hadn't been such friends with, say, David Tennant, that you know he was a reader of the magazine as well. You know, mm-hmm. um, it. Who would have th- you know who would have thought in the BBC's biggest show in in decades that the executive producer and the lead actor both read Doctor Who magazine and did do before they were working on the show. Man, that's that's pretty crazy. It almost goes uh, back to even in the wilderness years when all these people that were longtime fans of Doctor Who suddenly became the the writers of the books and of the audios and almost became the new caretakers of, of Doctor Who. Yeah, I think, you know, Doctor Who fandom has thrown up the most creative and wonderful people I've ever met in in any part of my life, and they've also it's also thrown up some of the worst people, <laughs> but um, we don't talk about them. So. <laughs> well, you got to have the good with the bad. Thankfully, most of the time, the the good outnumbers the bad by quite a bit. Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, do you have any like uh, favorite stories from your your Eighth Doctor days? Um, to be honest, I mean everything came together in the flood. Um, I, I genuinely think it's the best Cyberman story there's ever been in any medium um, because it uses the Cybermen. It's about the Cybermen. They're not just there with some plan to take over the universe. It's about them changing people mm-hmm. into themselves. It's, you know, it's a it's a vampire story, as it were. Um, and I think, you know, because we knew we wanted to send the Eighth Doctor out on a high, um, we sort of poured all the love and all the heart and soul we could into that strip to make it a really good finale and obviously you know there's there's that sad thing that we were offered the chance to do the regeneration um but because of rights issues and things like that we we just couldn't in the end it was impossible yeah um but to have been given that opportunity was wonderful and 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 again such a, a generous act on russell's part um to to think the comic strip was important enough to let something like that happen Mm -hmm. But even without the regeneration, I think the story, the script, the artwork, everything about that just came together. It's just wonderful. Oh, I totally agree. It's one of my favorite Doctor Who comic strips of all time. I think everything just just came together perfectly on that. I'm a huge Cyberman fan to begin with, so that one definitely is on my top, probably top two list. Oh, wow. That's great. <laughs> so, What's the other one? Go on. 
Um, actually, it's probably one of the simple little one-part stories, like the the uh, was a Happy Death Day. Oh yes, that, yes, that was, that's brilliant. That, yeah, that well, one. Any any Roger Langridge script is uh, you know strip is is fantastic. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I, I love Roger's artwork as well. It just has that that kind of classic timelessness quality to it. Yeah, he 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 was doing um, when I joined the magazine. It was his um, final strip. I'm trying to think of the name of it. Um, it was black and white. It was about little robots and um, a, a sort of a, an asylum for robots. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know which one you're talking about. I can't remember the title of it myself. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, that was the first time I'd seen sort of full size artwork. You know, when you get the original artwork delivered, uh-huh. um, and just seeing that was just it just blew me away. I, I never understand how, how artists do it. I remember, um, when I brought Alistair Pearson back, you know, cause he'd done so much Doctor Who artwork mm-hmm. in the nineties and I brought him back to do stuff for the first Doctor Who annual we did and, and getting an, an Alistair Pearson original and looking at it and just thinking, but that's not possible. <laughs> <laughs> that, that amount of detail in something which is relatively small, uh-huh. it, it, it shouldn't be humanly possible. Yeah. So you know the artists, uh, just uh, just legends to me. I just look up at them with awe. When you took over as editor of, of the magazine and started working more on the comic strip, uh, the, your your writer and artist team up were pretty well set. Did you did you ever think of kind of maybe changing them out for somebody else, or were, was uh... well, we did we did um we did change things up a little bit. I mean, after we'd finished. With Izzy, after we'd done that big arc of Izzy and Destry, mm-hmm. um, before Destry came back, um, we wanted a sort of year. I think I suggested doing a year of of more self-contained stories that were a bit lighter in tone because we had gone quite deep and heavy. Sure. Um, and I said, well, look, why don't we just pretend we're doing Doctor Who Weekly again and try and make the strips a bit like that? So we so we did try some other artists, try a couple of other writers, and just make the, the sort of solo McGann strips just a bit a bit frothier uh-huh. as it were. Um, and that was fine, but I, I think I really missed, um, uh, Martin Geraghty and Scott being the main backbone. So it was quite quickly. We went back to, you know, back to the good old days. Uh-huh. Really. Sure. Um, not, not, that, not that I regret doing, um, the more fun strips. I think it was necessary before we went into another massive arc with Destry's return and leading up to the flood. But, um, yeah, it was um, it, everything worked so well. I mean, you don't want to sort of if it ain't broke, don't fix it, really. Yeah, very um, true. And, I, and I, I, it definitely wasn't broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what other changes when you took over as editor did, did you want to do to the magazine? I, I've always said that I was the first editor in a long time who didn't come in with some big agenda. <laughs> um, I think you know Gary Gillett had a very fixed idea of what he wanted to do. So did Alan, sort of almost as a reaction to Gary. Um, just as Gary had reacted to Gary Russell before him. And mm-hmm. I just came in wanting to take the best bits of everyone's approach and make the nicest magazine I could. I didn't really have a right. It's, it, it all changes from here. Yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure that the magazine still had lots of fun in it. Um, I wanted it to be a real pleasure that you started from the front page, you worked your way to the back page and you had a lot of laughs along the way. Um, and it all looked pretty and, and uh, that was it really. I didn't, I didn't come in wanting to do anything in particular, but 
you know, as you're there and you see the way things work, um, you sort of get carried along by the enthusiasm of others. So, you know, you sort of relied on people to send in brilliant ideas for articles or for Scott to come up with an, another great um, story outline for the strip. And, uh-huh. and you get carried along with that enthusiasm, really. It's, it's, being the editor isn't, isn't sort of like demanding that people do things. It's, it's being open enough to welcome any, anyone with a good idea. And I, I sort of did that. Um, there was, um, uh, when I was there, I, a chap called Baxter, started sending in lots of bits of artwork uh-huh i've uh, chatted with uh, him yeah yeah he's great and uh, he was so um enthusiastic and so determined that i just turned around and said yeah here you go here, here, here's here's the, the short funny strip we've sort of been missing since tim quinn and dickie howitt's doctor who uh-huh. days and i thought we needed that again so so here you go and so i was always like that if, if people sent in stuff on spec you know just with just in an email i'd always read it i'd always look at it It, we were completely open to people um because anyone talented you just want them yeah most definitely there's there's no point having a closed policy and um and uh, not allowing other voices to come in i think you know you've really got to make sure that that you let everyone who's talented have a go. Mm-hmm. And, and we did do that with other artists um, on the strip. I'm trying to remember specifics, but um, I think Dan McDade um, was another one who, who sent in stuff and just thought, yeah, that's lovely. Uh-huh. So here you go. And I think people were always quite shocked about that because they expected, because you know we were a, a, a high street newsstand magazine, that everything would be very, you know, I'm trying to think bureaucratic, I suppose is the word. Yeah. But no, no, it wasn't like that at all. You know, if, if someone sent something in and it was good, we'd print it. And they used to sort of reel back in amazement and go, is it that easy? I was going, yeah, <laughs> if you're good, we want you. Uh-huh. Well, that's, you know, I think that's a, a lot of the problem with uh, some comic companies nowadays is they don't have an open submissions policy. And I think they're missing out on a lot of potential, you know, big name people down the road. I suppose it can be difficult for the really big companies because you must have so much stuff um, sent into you. And I imagine a a percentage of it is dross. Mm -hmm. Um, But whereas with Doctor Who, it was such a sort of small, happy little world in those days that um, that if people had gone to the effort of sending something in, there was the likelihood was that it was going to be good. Um, So we were quite lucky in that respect that we didn't have to have someone whose specific job it was to wade through all the submissions it was just a case of oh we got a lovely letter today oh isn't it isn't that nice Uh (laughs) so so i can sort of understand where they're coming from but Uh i think you you've got to find some sort of happy medium really otherwise like you say you you miss out on some really good stuff Mm -hmm. well um continuing on with the with the the comic strip did um once we hit the the TV show coming back and we get into the ninth actor stuff, um, did did you have to change the the tone of the comic strip any or the the way the comic strip was done? We we thought we were going to have to. We we I mean we had big discussions about it and um and Scott the big change was that Scott stepped down as um as the writer, mm-hmm. um, which I understood because you know he'd done so many years of of McGann <clears throat> and um. And sort of, I think he felt that, you know, he'd been the guiding hand behind all those stories. But now the comic strip was sort of uh, going down in in importance a little. Yeah. Um, You know, it was just going to be a spin-off from a TV show rather than its own entity. Mm -hmm. And and Scott felt 
understandably, that he wasn't going to have the sort of control or or be able to steer it in the way he had been. But luckily, he stayed on as my co-editor on the strip. So we still had his, you know, amazing wealth of comic strip knowledge. And, and you know, he, I mean, it's just astonishing the, the, the amount of stuff he knows about comic strips. He'll, he'll know, he can look at a, a, a page of script and just go, well, no, you need an extra panel there. That won't work. The speech balloons will intrude on someone's head there. And this is before it's been drawn. Wow. Um, Scott can look at this stuff and just tell you, no, that's not going to work. Um, because he's, he's been into, you know, Marvel comics and DC comics his whole life. Uh-huh. So he's really technically brilliant. So I was very glad to have him there, but I think what, what I did want to try and do was, uh, attract tv writers if i could um because i remember being quite impressed back in the day when andrew cartmore um was doing some seventh doctor strips uh-huh. it was great to have someone from the tv and also you know it was early days and i mean i was in a good position to know sort of what the tone of the new series was going to be but we still couldn't know for sure so i thought if we can get people who are involved in the tv series or have written for it to, to do some early strips um, then they'll be able to bring that knowledge and that, uh, you know, th- that knowledge of the tone and the way the Doctor is written, for example, his dialogue, his rhythms, uh-huh. to the strip in those early days when we're sort of struggling to find exactly what we what we need to do. Sure. So that was why I got Rob Shearman in and Gareth Roberts. Mm-hmm. And it also kind of gives... Um the the comic strip some credibility there because people will recognize the names and say oh yeah this person has written this episode that's absolutely right because you know i was aware that you know we were suddenly downgraded to a, a spin-off <clears throat> i mean we were a spin-off anyway but we were the only visual doctor who and now you've got a tv series so we're not as, we're just not as important you know there's no getting yeah. away from that fact yeah um so i thought you know if, if we've got voices and names that they recognize then people may give it a go who who might otherwise have just been buying the magazine to see behind the scenes photos from the new series? Mm-hmm. So um, once you continued on from from that strip, uh, one of the things that I personally want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for is the fact that you were the person who spearheaded doing the uh, graphic novels. Yeah, um, it's it's funny that because I I often think about how that came about because the, the basic truth of it. Oh well, well, thank you. First of all, that's that's very kind of you. Um, I I can't quite remember exactly how I came up with it. I think it was probably thinking back to that first um, Doctor Who summer special with the Iron Legion reprint, which was in colour. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember Gary Gillett had some issues of the '80s American Doctor Who reprints of oh, the yes. Dave Gibbons stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and I just remember sort of looking through the the old issues of the weekly we had in our archives and looking at those and thinking this stuff's never been printed very nicely. Mm-hmm. It's never been, it's never been reprinted in its original episodic form. Um, and it's never been, it's never looked as nice as it could. And you know, this is Dave Gibbons we're talking about. Oh yeah. Um, so I think I just went to Booney and said, look, um, we've got all this stuff. It will take a fair bit of work to get it up to a really high standard, but you know, it would be nice for us to move into that graphic novel form, mm-hmm. um, and and they agreed. But what I <laughs> what I hadn't realised was quite how much work it was going to take. <laughs> and also, you know, um, 
inventing this whole new thing that we were doing, um, I didn't get paid anything for it. You know, I was just on a standard wage. Uh-huh. So um, all the Doctor Who magazine specials and graphic novels and other spin-off things were just me making work for myself, um, which I didn't need to. <laughs> but I think, I think you know, that shows in the, um, in the final piece was that it was a labour of love. Uh-huh. It was a lot of love and a lot of labour. Oh, I bet. Um, because we didn't have the original artwork. Um, we just had to go back to the weeklies, scan them in, and then every single panel of every single page, go and clean them up. Uh, I'm sure that um, was a huge undertaking. Yeah, Perry Godbold, the brilliant unsung hero of Doctor Who magazine for many years, was um, took on the main task of that. But I did some as well because, you know, we had so much to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 you know, it's so intricate and painstaking. And, you know, when you're, when you're um, scanning something in from a not terribly well printed old, you know, weekly issue on terrible newspaper quality paper, you get a lot of little sort of little dots and scratches and, you know, every panel was like, and And fuzzy lines and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was just trying to return it to, um, uh, to the brilliance it would have been originally. I mean, we luckily in later ones, we did have odd pages and things. I remember we had quite a lot of the Peter Davison strip, the moderator, just in a cupboard at Panini. Oh, really? Yeah, and we had quite a lot of, um, when we did, went on to the Eighth Doctor stuff, we were able to go back to certain, you know, we ha- had quite a lot of that artwork, you know, still with the overlays of... Um, of uh, you know, because you get the original artwork and then you get a, a see-through overlay with the speech balloons. Uh-huh. Well, you, you did them before we went. I mean, I suppose that's the other big thing that happened in my time was that we went digital. Yeah, I, I bet that when was I, a... when I was first there. You know, every page of the magazine still came in in a four-color sort of sheet of acetate, uh-huh. which you had to sort of match together to make sure that it was all registering properly, and then send to the printers. And then, you know, by a couple of years in, it was all digital and PDFs. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that was, that was probably why we were able to do the graphic novels when we did was because we had moved to digital. So it was much easier. You could scan things in really good quality uh-huh. um, and, and then work and, on them from and there. fiddle with them in Photoshop and then export them. But I do remember with that first, we, we worked so hard on that first, um, graphic novel and then we got copies in and they'd been printed abominably. Oh, really? Um, yeah. It was like, it was almost like the ink had been wet when they were bound and pages had smudged onto each other, you know, it was like artwork from across the page was now visible on the previous page. And I just went to the management and said, this is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. We've worked for months on this and this is terrible. And, and amazingly they agreed and had it reprinted. No. So I think somewhere I have a, an original version that was of the ones that were pulped uh-huh. since they were so bad. But luckily, they they did a reprint with a different printers, and it, and it came out really nicely. And then that was we went on from there. But I was very lucky. I met Dave Gibbons. I mean, we'd been actually that's another story. We'd been in touch with Dave Gibbons briefly because Russell, um, quite early on in um, the new series, had offered to write a strip if we could get Dave Gibbons. Oh, really? To draw it, yeah. So I contacted Dave, um, and he was very kind, but he couldn't fit it into a schedule. And also, he was exclusively um, contracted to DC. Uh-huh. But the uh, the strip I did that Russell had had uh, eventually, with a lot of changes, became Love and Monsters. So oh, okay. 
So we would have, um, if all had gone well, had a had a Rusty Davis comic strip drawn by Dave Gibbons, <laughs> oh. but we didn't. But anyway, yeah, I met, I met Dave at a, a comics convention um, not long after um, they'd come out, and he he was really nice. He was he was just saying thank you, thank you for making my work look so lovely. Uh huh. Well, I so think that's you, that's the highest praise you can get. Is yeah, from if the you've artist. got the artist, if the artist is is appreciative of what you've done, then I think you know you've you've done well. Yeah, most definitely. And I know I I remember when uh, the I got my hands on the the Iron Legion graphic novel. I was amazed with how clean and pristine the the artwork was. Yeah, you'd never you'd never believe it was scanned in from the original comics, would you? It's no, sort of, you wouldn't. And it also was came in very handy because obviously later later on, um, IDW and I suppose now Titan. Uh, decided they wanted to do reprints so mm-hmm. under our contract with the bbc we were obliged to supply them with our digitally remastered versions for them to color sure Actually, so 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 it's sort of been out there in various forms now but at least it all looks lovely mm-hmm. um did did you have any inkling when you were doing the iron legion graphic novel to to colorize it no no that, that was i just wanted it to be as it originally was i mean mm-hmm. i like i it's sort of it, like I said, I mean, the Iron Legion and all those early Doctor Who weekly strips don't stand out particularly in, in those early magazines because most of the magazine is in black and white anyway. Yeah. Um, and I think when you have a collection and it's all in black and white, it, it looks rather lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it was, you know, towards the beginning of my stay on the magazine was that the comic strip was looking a bit old fashioned, surrounded by full color. But yeah. I think, you know, when, when you're collecting something, and, and presenting it in its original episodes, not sort of, you know, linked mm-hmm. together. Um, it's just as well to do it as it was originally meant to be seen. Sure. You know, because Dave Gibbons drew in black and white and, you know, uh, they use sort of, um, uh, you know, the, the dots. I forget what it's called now, that sort of black and white dot um, transfer stuff yeah, the... to do shading. And and that doesn't really work in colour. Mm-hmm. Um so I just wanted it to be. This is a collector's edition of exactly how it was. Yeah, I, I you know, and I, also it would have cost a fortune to color all that. <laughs> Very true. You know, I totally agree. I like I like seeing uh, the the stuff as originally presented. So seeing you know the the original Dave Gibbons artwork in black and white that that it was originally as you know that was a highlight for me. I mean, it caused us a bit of a bit of a problem with um uh the tides of time, Peter Davison strip because. Mm-hmm there's one spread um, later on in that strip, which is in color. Yeah. And we, you know, we couldn't, we couldn't just have two pages of a graphic novel in color. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we had to do was uh, sort of as a compromise was um, we printed the color spread on the inside of the front cover in color. Mm -hmm. And then as in, in the strip, you know, as as you're reading it through the book, we printed those two pages in black and white, a black and white version of those two pages. Yeah as part of the story. So you had both, but I mean that we were just scratching our heads going, what do we do? <laughs> yeah. That, that would definitely be a tough part, especially when you just have two, two pages to. Yeah. Cause to, e- equally, know. equally as I wanted it to be presented as it was originally, that had to be in color. We couldn't just do the black and white version. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of our vague compromise. <laughs> uh, how, how did uh, the iron Legion do sales wise? Apparently it was good enough that you continued on with the graphic novels. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I don't honestly know. Um, I, I'm assuming it did well enough. I mean, I, I never really knew. I wouldn't really know to tell, to be honest, what a good sales figure for a graphic novel is. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I know, you know, we were in all the big comic shops and even bookshops in the UK. Um, and we certainly had a lot of good feedback about it. And the management seemed happy with um, probably how little it cost. Um, uh, so, yeah, we just we just carried on. It's, it's funny. Mm-hmm. It's that strange thing about the way Panini worked was that we just sort of carried on doing whatever we did. And nobody really bothered us. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you didn't hear any bad things from from up top, you were good to go then. Yeah, I mean, they were very nice. You know, they were really nice. Like I said, they didn't really understand what we were doing. Um, and, you know, when the new series came about and suddenly we were a big thing, they took a lot more interest uh-huh. um, because I think they could smell money. Oh, um, I'm sure. But even then, you know, it was pretty much they left us to our own devices. And, um, and you know, it's really nice to see that the graphic novels have carried on because even, even after I left the magazine, I came back to finish, I think it was um, Colin Baker – I certainly, I certainly came back to finish the Eighth Doctor strips collections, and I came back to do the um, World Shapers, mm-hmm. Colin Baker one as well, because I just, well, because basically nobody else had time. Uh-huh. Um, and I think you know, from then on, most of the comic strip collections until recently were recent stuff, so it was all digital anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think they've recently gone back and done some of the McCoys. But to mm-hmm. be honest, my original idea was I wanted to do the fourth Doctor, Fifth Doctor and Sixth Doctor stuff because I thought there was a lot of really great material there. Sure. But after that, I wasn't that fussed because I just remember even at the time thinking the Seventh Doctor strips weren't really that great. Mm-hmm. So my, my interest sort of waned after that. Uh-huh. And uh, when it came to collecting the Eighth Actor stuff, the the one of the highlights for me in those is all the behind the scenes stories that you have at the end. Yeah, that was something I was determined to do. I really wanted because um, the D- DVDs have been coming out for a lot of years, and I really loved all the documentaries uh-huh. and behind the scenes looks. And I just thought, well, come on, you know, we've got everyone's still around. Let's let's talk about how these things came about. And Scott still had lots of. Um, rough artwork and designs and storylines and, and scripts that were altered. And, and I just thought, let's put it all in there. Cause if, if people really love the strips and want this collected edition, um, we need to give them some added value because, you know, when you think about it, it wasn't that long ago they were printed. Yeah. So there might've been a reticence from people about, do I want to spend this money? And so with the Eighth Doctor stuff, I mean, there are even occasions where, um, certainly in those early ones, where there have been some quite bad um, rushed artwork in certain panels or, or the um, speech balloons had gone wrong. Uh-huh. So we got the money to sort of redo certain panels that Scott selected. That He just said, look, that's terrible. Can we redo that? Uh-huh. There were whole pages, in fact. And then later on, with the more recent stuff that I've been working on, I got the money to expand because – we were sometimes limited by having seven or eight pages and Scott, we didn't have the money to expand them at the time, but I was able to go back to the original um, scripts that Scott had written and give, you know, say the finale of children of the revolution, an extra two pages. Uh So you can have an explosion. That's, that's not a tiny panel at the bottom of a page. It's a full page. Yeah. But then we also printed the original versions at the back. So, you know, any real collectors could, have those as well because i'm you know i'm i'm as anal a doctor who fan as there are i want all my spines to match on the shelf so oh um, we we are we are co-patriots on that one because i'm I'm definitely i'm that exact same thing i want my spines to match i want to have all the original material if you're going to change something on me and so i was one of those that was cheering that you put the original stuff in the back of the graphic novels yeah i was i was the same when i was doing the dvd covers certainly in the uk because i 
they started changing the logos and things on the spines. And I said, look, can we, can we print them double sided so that on one side we have this new layout and on the other side we have the original layout. So they all match on the shelf. <laughs> and amazingly they went for that as well. So, you know, I, I was very clear that, you know, everything had to be there, but, uh-huh. um, I really felt we were, we weren't trying to do a George Lucas as it were. We were just trying to, um, uh, make things more impressive as they should have been had we had the money. Yeah. Uh, like it, and also, you know, it was an opportunity to print that unused final script for the flood, which I was determined that we get out there. Yep. Yeah, that that was the for the the graphic novel that that was the highlight for me was just seeing how the story was originally going to end. Yeah, it was um it was sad that um we had to lose it, but I I I sort of like especially now we've had um Night of the Doctor with Paul McGann's return, because that would have completely non-canonized our strip anyway. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I was sort of glad in the end. I thought, oh, there you go. Yep. We, we would have been kicked out of continuity anyway in the end. So. Yep. Um, with the, the earlier graphic novels that you did, like the Iron Legion and, and uh, other ones, did you ever want to do like the, the DVD commentary stuff on the back of those? Um, well, when we first started, it, it was difficult because we, we – it was we didn't really know what the range would grow into mm-hmm. so it was pretty much just a case of it's going to take us long enough to um to get together all these strips in printable form so there wasn't really much thought about uh, extra features or, or or speaking to the original artists i wish i had now mm-hmm. but i think at the time because you know it was, it was a workload on top of my magazine workload sure um and, you know, this was sort of 2004, so things were gearing up for the new series. So I just didn't have time to, or the money, really, to send people out to track down um, Dave Gibbons or, um, you know, any of the writers. And I wish I had now, um, but we didn't know if they were going to sell, if it was going to be a full range or anything. Yeah. And I think, you know, all the money in those in those early ones were really spent on just getting the stuff up to scratch. Uh-huh which we didn't have to worry about so much with the eighth doctor stuff. Cause it already was for the most part. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we stuck in a few little things like there was an interview with Frobisher that had been done in the magazine, which we reprinted, but mm-hmm. I do wish we'd given, uh, you know, given the artists and writers an opportunity and, you know, maybe there'll be a special edition one day where they can do that. But, and also I didn't really have much contact information for them. I didn't, um, I didn't know them as yeah. it were, like, you know, uh-huh. Whereas I knew Alan and Scott and everyone, obviously. Yep. Um, but yeah, it was it was a shame. But also, I didn't think that Dave Gibbons would be willing to sit down for the measly amount we could pay and write detailed notes about each of his stories. Yeah, that's very true. What do you remember or look on as your your biggest contribution to Doctor Who magazine during your tenure as editor? Um. Well, number one, well, the first bit is sort of keeping it going mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and giving you know, giving new writers and new artists and stuff an opportunity. Sure. Um, and that leads up to the flood, which I'm, I'm so proud of being a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's Scott's baby really, but I had a lot of input into that. Um, and then I suppose it's just sort of making the magazine bomb proof with the new series. So, you know, it, it could go off on its happy way, um, safe and solid and secure and I think, you know, when I decided to leave, it was kind of, um, we were into the third season of New Who, and it was, um, I sort of felt, well, I've kind of done it now. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's become a sort of a year-round treadmill, 
that I was doing the same thing again for the third time, sort of, um, because everyone at the BBC would change every year. Uh So, you know, I'd have to go and make friends with the new picture editor or something every year Uh um, to make sure that they knew we were nice and we were friendly. Um, And it felt like, well, I've kind of done it now. And also, I think at the time, we'd gone from being the only voice to suddenly there was Doctor Who Confidential for 45 minutes for every episode. Um, There were commentaries on the box sets and on the internet. There was the website. There was Doctor Who Adventures. um, There was IDW. Mm -hmm. um, And I just thought, without sort of the archives as the backbone, I sort of felt we'd lost a little bit of our uniqueness. It was like everything was being covered in so many other ways that I just sort of thought, well, I don't know what else I can give. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And, and you know, I think, you know, when, when you feel like that, you should give somebody else a go. Yeah. Um, because, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd done two versions of the magazine, really. Um, you know, I'd, I'd done the Wilderness Years and I'd done the Here It Comes Back new glitzy. And, you know, it, the magazine was sort of safe again. Uh-huh. It was fine. You know, I didn't need to look after it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and guide it and, and take care of it. So I think that was why I just thought, yeah, that's sort of it for me, really. Uh-huh. Time for a new caretaker. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, if, if you if you haven't got the the sort of the drive behind you, then it, it's not fair on the magazine, and I love that magazine, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, give it to somebody else. Yeah. So uh, what are you doing nowadays? Um, I've been doing TV writing. Um, I mean, when I left the magazine... Um, I did quite a bit of book work. I, when I was doing the DVD covers, I did the brilliant book of Doctor Who for two years. Oh, which is wonderful which was, stuff. Oh, thank you. I mean, I was really proud of those. It was That was kind of uh, using a lot of the stuff I'd learnt on the magazine to um, to bring sort of a useful, um, almost, um, almost a f- really official feeling thing, you know, where you've got the writers from the TV series doing extra stuff about their own episodes in the book. So it felt really... It, it, this is real. Uh-huh. Um, so I did those. Um, and then I wrote um, for the Sarah Jane Adventures and latterly for Wizards versus Aliens, which was Russell's, Russell and Phil Ford's other show for kids after Paul Liz died. Uh-huh. Um, and then there's another BBC project on the go at the moment, which we're just waiting for the go ahead on. So, um, yeah, so sort of went into writing really, but. Um, I still sort of, you know, I read the magazine every month and I still submit little things to sort of the watchers back page and uh-huh. well, Gareth and I write little limericks for the time team, which no one ever notices because they're <laughs> not, they're at the beginning of every time team, but they're not formatted like limericks and nobody knows they're there. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so it's still sort of very much part of my life and, you know, I, I share a flat with Gareth. So, uh-huh. um, you know, I, I get a sort of insider's look at how the new series comes together. Uh-huh. So it's, it's strange really. So I've, I've, I've sort of been there all the time, really. Um, it's sort of, it's funny when it, something you love as a kid becomes part of your life. And for a while it becomes your job, but I never really sort of lost the love for it, which, you know, is you, you fear will become, you know, just, just another thing, mm-hmm. you know, it takes all the magic away, but it doesn't really with Dr. Who it's still, you know, a massive, massive part of my life. Mm, um, and I hope it always will be. Well, that, that's good to hear. It, it's it's nice to hear that something that's been with you for since you were a kid uh, continues to 
to and give you enjoyment and, and pleasure and fulfillment all even in your career. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a wonderful thing, and I think you know sometimes I miss the um, uh, sort of the closeness, the sort of family feeling of of the wilderness years when everyone's sort of huddled together for warmth around a tiny flickering spark of. <laughs> of <Dr. laughs> But also, you know, it's just incredible. Who, who would have thought if I could go back and, you know, tell myself in 2003 that, you know, <laughs> Doctor Who would be what it is now? Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't have believed it. Yeah, it's, it's just it, incredible it, how much it's grown and expanded and become a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you feel that, too. As somebody who grew up in the sort of the latter years and the wilderness years, um, that the way Doctor Who was treated or the way Doctor Who was seen becomes Im- printed on your brain as the sort of the default setting mm-hmm. so all of this stuff i keep having to sort of pinch myself because i expect doctor who to be treated shabbily and to be mocked and it's 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 not it's it, you know that thing i always dreamed of came true mm-hmm. so i'm assuming that all reality is just um my own computer generated dream <laughs> Yeah, I know. Uh, as, as somebody who uh, kind of was was helping to fan the flame of Doctor Who during the wilderness years, and uh, helping put together a Doctor Who fan club here in Iowa, and having twice a year get-togethers, and and going to conventions where there was you know five hundred to seven hundred people for for a Doctor Who convention. That now that Doctor Who is so huge and so popular that. Back when in in the day when I wore a Doctor Who pin on my jacket, people would go Doctor Who, what is that? To now yeah. seeing people that are wearing TARDIS T-shirts and uh, scarves and and carrying around sonic screwdrivers, it's just it, it blows my mind. Yeah, I mean it was it was great because my my brother's kids were just at the right age when the series came back, so I was able to be the cool uncle and send them <laughs> and send them remote controlled Daleks and get them on the set of Totally Doctor Who to meet David Tennant and and operate the face of Bo. Oh wow! So so for a while, you know, with those kids, I was the coolest uncle you could possibly get. And uh-huh. I never thought I'd be saying that. <laughs> Well, sir, I, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to to chat with me, and I, I love hearing the behind the scenes stuff about you know the making of Doctor Who magazine and the and the comic strip. And I want to once again thank you for for what you did for Doctor Who magazine for carrying it along towards the end of the wilderness years, and and uh, what you did with the when the show came back. Well, thank you. It's, it's been a real pleasure, and I, I, I love talking about the comic strip stuff because, like I say, it's my fondest and biggest memory of working on the magazine is is the strip so um it's just really nice that someone else is out there celebrating it oh you you know my and my two great loves are comic books and doctor who so you know the comic strip is the perfect mesh of the two and that's why i do this podcast oh that's lovely well keep it up (laughs) thank you very much it's been a pleasure talking to you yeah and you sir I hope you enjoyed that chat I had with former Doctor Who magazine editor Clayton Hickman. It was a pleasure to chat with him. He is a wonderful, friendly, great person, and uh, it was great to chat with him. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Doctor Who Panel to Panel as well. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you're looking for past episodes, check your podcast feed for more recent uh, previous episodes, including great wonderful chats with Uh, editors, writers, artists, all sorts of people who have worked on Doctor Who comics, past and present. And also go to archive.org 
and do a search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel, or my name's Jeremy B. Ment, and you can find all previous episodes on archive.org as easy-to-download MP3 files. So, that is it for this episode. Until next time, a new episode should be coming out approximately the end of the month, beginning of January. So, until then, I hope you have a very Merry Christmas, a Happy Holiday, and until next time, this is Jeremy B. Ment, saying bye. Doctor Who Panel to Panel, the podcast about Doctor Who comics, thanks you for downloading this episode. Let us know what you thought about this episode or of Doctor Who comics in general. You can find us socially on Facebook at Doctor Who Panel to Panel, on Twitter at Doctor Who P2P, 2 being the number 2, and online at DoctorWhoComics.com. Download previous episodes via your favorite podcast service and find the complete catalog of episodes featuring amazing interviews with creators past and present at archive.org. Just search for Doctor Who Panel to Panel. Thank you. Thank you.